in my past experience at a large telecom conglomerate, we would spend a lot of time understanding our employees by personas. We'd use data science to figure out, you know, what similarities and differences they have. And only then is really when you can start thinking about solutions. Welcome to Broken Benefits. I'm your host, Lee Lewis, and this is a podcast where we learn from top employer experts on how to fix our broken benefits to save lives, save dollars, and save your talent. Hi, welcome to Broken Benefits. Uh, I'm your host, Lee Lewis, and so excited to introduce today's guest. I am joined today by Steve Hulper. He is a luminary that has been influencing our industry for many years. To give you a little idea of his background, Steve worked 20 years in digital health. He led four startups and worked in corporate startups and has worked in every vertical within healthcare, whether it be on the provider side, marketing side, uh, pharmaceuticals, and uh, the like. When he managed a health plan, which he did for half a decade, Steve oversaw the spending of over $7.5 billion, billion with a B, dollars in healthcare. In addition to that, thanks to his efforts, his employer saved over $575 million. And today he is going to be walking us through the ways that he thought about healthcare, the ways he deconstructed it, and the tactics and strategies that we can all use um, while managing uh, healthcare benefits, whether just through the benefits or as a business leader. And with that, let, uh, let's bring him in here. Steve, welcome to the show. Hi, Lee. How are you? Fantastic. Good to see you. Uh, thrilled to get into this. Want to jump right in. Steve, many people who manage health plans today don't understand or think about the problem, I think, with the same kind of multifaceted approach that you have coming from so many different areas. Would you mind deconstructing a little bit for us what is broken about healthcare today from the vantage point of an employer? Wow. Well, I have to say employers do an awful lot to make sure that their employees are healthy. That's we we know that. And it's been a you know, it, it's it's been an evolution over time. There are many challenges. You, know, I don't want to go into the pandemic for a very long time, but you know, prior to that, there's been this uh, process of figuring out how to get employees to engage in their own health, and that's been that's always difficult because it's behavioral change. Uh, people are set in their ways, and there's only so much you can do as a benefit provider. So, you know, really getting understanding the client is probably the most important thing. So for example, you know, in my past experience at a large telecom conglomerate, we would spend a lot of time understanding our employees by personas. We'd use data science to figure out, you know, what similarities and differences they have. And only then is really when you can start thinking about solutions. Um, you know, someone who works in one business unit and we'll just say they stand all day is going to be very different than someone who's who's in a uh, media role or someone who's in a customer facing role so those things are they add characteristics that people people often overlook um so really getting to empathize with different groups of people and spending time with them is probably the the most important thing and i don't know how much time people spend doing that but it's it's really uh, it's really advantageous if you're going to try to customize uh, healthcare for everyone. 
Yeah. What was the biggest surprise that you stumbled into while you were while you were learning about this? Because I I think I sort of take it for granted that I know who people are and how they operate. And I'm sure you probably had some of those same biases, but once you got the data, what were some of the surprises and, and how did they impact the way that you managed the healthcare? I, I think the surprises, if you actually go into the field and speak to people one-on-one, we used to do, you know, in our, our team, we had a research team uh, within our innovation product team. So we would actually have team members that specialized in health engagement. They would go interview people. They would use, you know, traditional market research technology, um, approaches like, you know, interviewing one-on-one and doing surveys, et cetera. But the most important thing was getting face-to-face with people. And what's most surprising to me is actually when you start asking questions about how they've experienced the health plan or a specific provider, or even on the financial side, you'll start to hear individual stories that come surface. And in those individual stories about, well, I had a challenge with, uh, you know, accessing a lab in this state or had a challenge with um, getting reimbursement for this, um, it becomes very emotional because they have personal stories attached to it. So um, I think one of the things that people take for granted uh, if you're not in the benefit space is that all of those employees have families, they have caregivers, they have uh, dependents and you're responsible for all of them. So you need to make sure that you understand as much as possible. So that's like, that primary research is is a critical foundation. That's fascinating. And I agree with you. I think a lot of employers don't necessarily do that. Um, this tactic, sort of thinking about it in terms of almost as a market fit kind of approach to healthcare and and in looking at them in, in different personas and different needs of different people in different roles. That's, I think, a really good example of one tactic that you used that was different than the norm. What are some of the other tactics that your team used that that would probably be considered novel or yeah. or very outside the norm? So we talked about research. I think the second part of that strategy is really heavily focused on uh, data science. So our data science team would look across a variety of data sets. So whether it's the health plan, the pharmacy plan, disability, uh, retirement, and we'd be looking for things that are cues within our overall population. I mentioned personas before. So if you can kind of abstract what your population looks like, search for common uh, concerns, you can do a better job at making sure you have solutions that fit uh, the majority of people's needs. Um, the we would leverage our data science team to identify not just trends, you know, how do these things correlate to one another if it's something completely unrelated? You know, so for example, some findings that are interesting are, you know, people with low 401k balances have a lower tendency to go out on disability because they can't afford huh. to do a hardship withdrawal um, or take a loan out. So that's an interesting thing that you may not think about, but it's, it's impactful nonetheless, when you think about the full story. And then remember, I mean, we're all, if you're in this profession, you're really focused on emotional, financial, and physical well-being. That's super important, but it's also super important to cut across those and look at the intersections between them all. What made your team different from a typical benefits team? I think our approach was, because my background is, as you introduced, I, I was, you know, spent a lot of time in product development. So it was 
uh, when we stood up the team, it was how do you build an organization that looks like a product development team within a startup? And it's, you know, have a, a team that focuses on product development. And I'll explain what that is in a minute. The data science team, as I mentioned, the research team. You have an agile team that's helping to expedite things to make it go faster. Um, and change management uh, was also a huge aspect of that, making sure that any changes are made or communicated appropriately, working with you know the appropriate communications teams. So when I say product development, I mean you know physically partnering with a startup uh, who has some you know they they may not be super mature, but they might have a very unique idea, and we would take them through like an accelerator. So we'd sign up with them. Uh, we'd figure out what their base product is and how our, uh, how our team members would use them. And so, then we would, good. Oh yeah. Real, so like an example, so you're sitting in benefits, yeah. um, you're sort of a super customer cause you guys spend over a billion a year in healthcare and you're looking at all these point solutions. And so you'll find a point solution, let's say a telemedicine company that you like you then would sign the contract with them or this is still kind of during the negotiation process, you start moving them into this kind of startup. Incubator. So it's a, it's a good point of clarification because you know this, Lee, having worked with me before is that, you know, benefits leaders are inundated with vendors, inundated. I mean, um, completely. in my no first question. week, we put together a database with a website where people could register and I, you know, thousands upon thousands of companies and you wouldn't believe that there were that, that many exist. Um, the value in that is to look across those companies, what they're offering. You see a lot of what's good and what's not good and what could be better. You know, I myself, uh, previously being a scientist, I liked companies that actually took the approach of using outcomes research and validating their products. I thought that was a, a really good approach. And there's many companies that do that today still. Um, but yes, to, to answer your question, we would we would find and vet those vendors. And then we take the ones that had the best uh, potential and we're flexible enough to do uh, agile design the way we wanted to. So, okay, take just a second. I don't know anything about anything. What sure. in the world is agile design? So, user, we would use user centered design, but we do it in an agile way. So, we would, <laughs> you know, when we onboard one of these uh, companies, here's how the process would go. The first thing is, you know, give the internal team an overview of what they do. Number two, set up some uh, meetings in the field. So with our employees say, hey, how would you use this? Do you think this is useful? Is this something you would pay for? Because you know, paying for something is really the uh, highest uh, uh, indicator of whether it's going to be used. Um, Fascinating. So we would ask your employees if they'd be willing yes. to pay their own money for a benefit that you're, that you're probably going to pay for for them as a way to gauge whether or not they'd even like it. Yeah, and, and just remember, depending on the type of benefit, they may be paying for it anyway um, mm. through their premium. So that's uh, that's Great really point. important to understand that. So um, we would go through the process of distilling that feedback and then we, we would work with the vendor and we would invite them to come with us. We're not doing this on our own. Um, we would distill that, we'd go through some product development, like, okay, based on what we heard, how are we going to design this? How are people going to use it? Who's it good for? Who's it not good for? Uh, and then they would go and they would sprint out the design of the product. They would show it to us as you would you know, properly do every sprint at the end of it. So and, wait, just as a clarifier, then you would get feedback on how your people would like this product or yeah. how they might use it. And then you would go to the vendor and tell them changes they needed to make in their product. 
we would work with them as a single team. So we would be on their development sprints and we would be making, you know, they would be showing that what they've de delivered in that period of time. And why that's important is because we would do scaled rollouts. So we wouldn't, we would do it in one state or one region, et cetera. But before we did that, we would take a, a refined design and we would get in front of more people. And this would be a different type of research. So it's not, you know, the concept level research. This is more like, mm -hmm. here's an actual product. Let me put it in your hands, use it. And we're going to observe how you're using it, whether you use it, whether you would continue to use it. And, you know, take all those findings back into yet another design sprint. And we would do the same thing. So it's important to kind of iterate, get feedback before you do these launches, even in pilot areas, because this is investment, it's dollars. If it's not going to have the outcome that you want, um, you maybe shouldn't do it. But I, I just found from my experience that the outcomes that you get from solutions that you um, collaborate with them on for your population is a much higher probability of some sort of um, outcome that's going to benefit. Did you ever run into vendors? Did the vendors ever say, "Ah, my my product's awesome today. Yes. I don't want to. I don't want to change it." How, how did how did that negotiation play out? Uh, we we typically didn't work with companies that had that attitude because the um, it's not how we chose to work, and it wasn't how they would be uncomfortable working in that way. There were a couple that we kind of wrestled into. Uh, working in that manner. Uh, but I can tell you the ones that are off the shelf often, um, you're, you actually, if you look at the hiring boards right now, you'll see a lot of people in benefits are hiring, like the vendors are hiring marketing people to do member engagement to recruit. They know this because there's only so much share of voice that happens within a corporation. So just think about this, you're a benefits person, you need to get your new benefit out and you're competing with quarterly results for the company bonus time um you know every month there's some sort of event that's important and there's just not enough share of voice voice to get the word out so as a result a lot of these benefits you know this lee they've got three percent five percent utilization yeah, three five percent unless it's hard here on like a fertility program where you'll get very good results but you know otherwise you know the the engagement's pretty low i've always thought this that that the future of managing a health plan really is an advertising job in, in a lot of ways, because as we find solutions to problems, it's like, okay, we've got solutions. Now we, we make, we can make sure we got a great diagnosis or an accurate diagnosis for cancer or for, mm -hmm. uh, you know, chronic pain. We now have therapists who are standing by to take your call. If somebody needs to talk to somebody, the challenge then becomes how in the world do we let everybody know what to do when they need to do it and where, Okay, pulling that thread a little bit. I'm a I'm a benefits manager. I run a I don't know one two three thousand life company or even a ten or twenty thousand life mm -hmm. company. I can hire one person to help me get into this. I can't build out all these fancy teams that you had at your multi billion dollar company. Mm -hmm. What um, or multi billion dollar health plan, let alone company. What are who who am I going to hire? You're you're advising me. Tell me who to hire and how and what's the kind of the first, second, and third thing that I should do to start managing my health plan better? So it's a good question. If, if, if you're talking about an internal hire, I mean, my first recommendation is someone who specializes in data 
science and I'm not saying okay. analytics, I'm saying data science. So, you okay. know, to the extent that you can get access to the data, you should. Uh, the first thing that I did when this, uh, the role that I took was created and, and just keep in mind when I started, it was me. I think the team grew to somewhere around 25 at, at uh, five years later, but um, getting, understanding the data architecture was the first task. So where is it? Can I access it? What are the regulatory constraints about use of it? And do we have an environment to change or manipulate it? So to me, that's like first and foremost, because without, without being able to measure, you're not going to be able to understand whether you're performing well, if you're, you I mean, you can take the word of consent. So there's nothing wrong with doing that. I think many of them uh, do a fine job, but I think there's some value in verifying for yourself and having some, um, some additional information to drive what your strategy could be. Interesting. So data science person, not an analyst. I, not an analyst. I'm a lay person. I don't necessarily know the difference between those two. So what, yeah. So when you train to be a data scientist, I mean, part of what you do is data cleansing. So that's like 99% of the work that has to be done. So when you, when okay. I say data scientist, I'm talking about someone who has a statistical background and can do linear regression and analysis of variance and those types of things, because depending on what type of analysis you're doing, you're going to want to look for, you know, correlation. If you're very good, you may find causation, which is doubtful, but you know, the, the point is you want to look for things that are related to one another, you know, is, you know, is there an impact on the health plan if you make a change at the PBM? And the answer is, the answer is, yeah, there is, you just don't know what it is. So, um, you know, keeping, keep, keeping an eye on those, uh, interrelationships between your data sets is important. Okay. Now I've got my, my data scientist, I'm starting to work. What are the, uh, what's the, what are the first steps I'm probably going to be taking? Let's assume that I've got a large enough sample size. Maybe we increase it to 10,000 or more people cool. to where. At that size, everybody has the same problems, right? Wildly different problems are for small sample sets. Every huge employer has the same problems. I now identify those based on what you know, running a billion dollar health plan, what are the what are the tactics and the things that I've got to probably button up first? Well, you know, I you know, I quickly said data science, but I will tell you that if if you're in a firm that doesn't have a benefit administration is a huge huge thing. So if you don't have that outsourced, if you don't have that in control, if your benefits team is handling escalations and if they're handling executive escalations, I mean, that mm. takes a lot of time and care. So you have to, you know, when I quickly say data science, cause it's something I'm interested in, I say that from uh, the perspective of wanting to advance forward. Right. So um, returning to but the, you've question, got the basics covered, like we're, we're assuming that we've got basic areas covered. Yeah. And could you re remind me of your question? Lee? Yeah. So now we've got, we've got our basic items covered, you know, in terms of the administration, we're not just running around like firefighters all day. Uh, we have, we've hired our data scientist. We're now, I guess, getting our data from the insurance carrier and the PBM. And we now have access to our data and we're beginning to, to sort through it and, and look at the opportunities and options are there. What are some of the likely initial steps that we're going to be taking to manage our health plan and start saving significant dollars to try and get our trend down to, you know, zero. 
so I think this this has to do with um, part of where this comes from is because I've worked in, as you know, a variety of different healthcare positions and right worked in oncology and diabetes and asthma and a bunch of things. So I, I think you know to the extent that it, it's always good to have some medical help. I, I will say that. So if you know we were fortunate enough to have a chief medical officer who is wonderful and can help the team kind of determine okay what are the high cost conditions. You can do this with a little research too. Um, what are comorbids? So, you know, if someone has diabetes, what's the likelihood of them having hypertension? So it's really kind of familiarizing yourself with the overall health of the population and figuring out if there's anything there. Now, I will say, Lee, and you and I have spent a lot of time talking about PBM strategy is that, you know, I look at what you can do with a PBM as a lever that highly controls the cost of the health plan. So I'm just assuming a situation where the PBM and the health plan are separate, but yep. you know, and they should, I think that's the best practice to say, mm -hmm. look, if you've got your PBM and your carrier all kind of bundled together, that is not best practice. Those should be separated out. Mm -hmm. um, so when we talk about, you, you know, medic, uh, just let's be people for a second here. So Lee, do you go to the doctor's office every week? No, no. Okay. Uh, if you're on a medication, do you take that every day? Uh, probably, yes. Probably, okay. So just as a baseline, most people are interacting with healthcare without knowing it. Maybe the exercise, I consider that a form of healthcare. Sure. Um, but medication is really front and center for a lot of people. It's it's kind of, I don't necessarily view myself as ill every day. I feel like I'm living with something uh, that that yeah. that I just have to deal with. And it's just part of my life. It's just one little thing. So when I look at opportunities to engage i look at the pbm so it's you know this is where we're gonna have the most impact the most touch points so you know there's navigation services that are emerging right now that i i personally believe are wonderful and and um part of that has to do with my personal story i have crohn's disease and it was very difficult for me to get on a um a path that works i'm on a biologic with some other small molecule uh, products that actually helped me but that took three years of, of pain hmm. So, you know, to me, I, I often look empathetically at like, let's talk, let's think about people that are newly diagnosed on some condition or not newly diagnosed, they're hypothetically diagnosed. And, you know, are they on the right treatment? Because those people, here's what's going to happen. If, if they're in a, if they have a condition where they're getting sicker, you've got a disability problem because, or an absentee or a presentee problem. Right. Um, you're going to have more health plan costs because they're out of control with their, um, so it, it just, and they, they're going to have experienced physical and emotional stress through this. So yep. I feel like presenteeism performance, there's a whole cascade that goes into that. So for me, when you, when you, if you can master this concept of getting something on someone on a therapy or a treatment as soon as possible, I feel like there's a huge opportunity to, to make inroads there and make everyone it's it's wins all around better experience for the employee better outcome for the health plan yeah but my my pbm does all that for me already today right like mm, they do all that do today i would probably not right i mean pbms no the, i mean if, if that look, were being done 80 percent of the market 85 percent of the market is with three pbms so by logical extension if all three of those were doing a good job everyone would have experienced yeah, but you, you know this, the PBMs are financial instruments. So it, it's, 
Yes, they help people get medications. Yes, have they done a better job at getting mail order to people? Absolutely. Have they done a better job of saying, well, here's a 90 day supply. So you get a little discount. Do people appreciate that? Yes, they do. But at the end of the day, that's, that's for kind of routine, you know, maintenance. So what do you do for these other circumstances where people need a little extra help or they're confused or they're not on the right medication set? I mean, I personally feel like there should be more to the extent that it's valuable that, you know, laboratory results are more tied into how the PBM operates. So if, if I have a disease and my serum sedimentation rate is off, that means, you know, the doctor should know that, but um, shouldn't they get an advanced knowledge that your medication might not be working? hundred percent hard, hard to deliver, but yeah. that's exactly oh. right. Okay. So switching gears just a tiny bit, I want to highlight something. This was published about your work. The New York times said that the work that you did, well, the first they named, they named your team, the most innovative uh, employer healthcare group in the United States. Mm -hmm. Secondly, it was reported that you hit, you had, effectively 1% trend for seven years. I'm guessing that's where that 575 million in savings comes mm -hmm. from. I want to, I want to be uh, sports announcers after the game, breaking down touchdowns, turnovers, you know, completions, et cetera. I want you to take that $575 million of just free EBITDA that you created. Who I, I can't imagine how much value that created for shareholders can you break that down? Where did that come from? How, how do we break those numbers out into the into the areas that were big opportunity so that maybe me as a benefits manager out in the field, yeah. I, can, I could learn from that and emulate what you did? Yeah. So firstly, I can't, you know, I, I can't do anything but acknowledge that, you know, I was fortunate enough to work for Sean Levitt as a, he was my mentor and friend. Um, and he's a wonderful person all around. And I think many people in this industry know who he is. Yes. Um, and you know, through his eyes, he saw the um, benefit of making sure that you put employees first. And in doing so, the strategy that he employed was if you put employees first, the outcomes will materialize. So strategically, the, the way that we thought about things was based on that kind of aspirational mission statement, which is do the right thing. And, you know, the impact's going to follow. So, you know, part of when you think about what we focused our time on, it was the, this balance. So yes, the cost matters. We do not, we do not disagree with that. That's firstly, right. secondly, our employees and their families and dependents matter more, right? So yes. Oh, and to clarify on this, that 575 million, that's not just raising copays and deductibles. No, in that fact, was, Oh, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. In fact, that was, this is critically important because most people think, yeah. Yeah. And that was never done. And we, we did not have a high deductible health plan first. I mean, that's, let's you start with did that. not have a high deductible health plan no. and you did not get savings by increasing deductibles, premiums, no. copays. No, you got 575 million out of the system, presumably from taking that from big pharma and hospital administrators or something. I don't, yeah. I don't know, but reducing consumption that was wasteful and unnecessary. So we were fortunate enough to have a team that looked at um, all of these aspects as related. So 
if we made a change to, it's interesting you say that, do, are we increasing copays? Are we adding this or that? Um, we, our investment strategy was we will remove copays for certain medications for chronic diseases and in doing so save money, not cost money. Because if you study the problem that these preventive medications actually provide more value and you take a longer term view of this, which we always forecasted forward to make our investments make sense. So we would look at, you know, we would look at the epidemiology of our population, the health at large, and we would say, well, what does this forecast forward look like if we make this change? And that's how we would model any changes we would make. And the, we did not take things away. I, I will say one of the things that, you know, there's a, a bunch of companies right now that do navigation. Navigation is important. Um, it's not the only thing that helps though. As I mentioned before, the, you know, virtual care, on-site clinics, all of those things are a piece of the puzzle. So one other thing Lee, that we, the way we viewed it as the network, so you can view a network pretty narrowly. You can say, okay, the network is are the providers that work for the health plan or ultimately work for us through the health plan. Mm -hmm. Or you can say the network is all of this stuff together. So it's the clinic that's on your site. It's the telemedicine provider, which we had prior to the pandemic, which was still important and useful. And then how do you optimize that network? So, you know, why do you do an on-site clinic? Well, some people do it because of convenience, but some people actually right. say if you have high quality primary care, and I know you, you and I agree on this, totally. is that the step down to specialty, the referrals, the higher quality referrals that you get, the better you'll be. So it's stopping that cost before it starts, getting people on the right path, giving them convenient access to care. Um, the other thing that we did um, was, and I'll tell you something fun with data science. So you all, Lee, you're in Texas, so I know you know this. So there's like yeah. urgent cares like Starbucks in Texas. Yes. Right. And most of them are, most of them are like freestanding emergency rooms. They're way now, yeah, now they urgent like care. specialty urgent care. Like you yeah. broke a bone, go to the specific one for that. Um, so one of the things that, you know, if you look at the emergency room, I think every employer at some point, or maybe still does has either admissions or hospital readmissions challenges. Now we don't want to forget the Obama administration actually put a hospital readmissions reduction program in place. So there was some actual, you know, at least from a Medicare perspective, there was uh, some trend to fix that. Now, right. here's what happens though. So as a business, the hospitals know that reimbursement's shifting because, okay, I don't want you to go experience this very expensive uh, emergency room visit. So what happens is they say, okay, well, we're going to take our same emergency room physician group and we're going to make an urgent care that is a lower, uh, it's a lower cost to operate but we're going to staff it with the same physician group, which is what they do. Right. Right. So ultimately what happens is the employer says, okay, I want you to navigate to urgent care. They teach people through communication, their navigators, mm -hmm. telemedicine, et cetera, plan design. Urgent care, not ER. That's right. Plan design. So that's been, I think, effective, although in some areas it's still, it's still the go-to. So, I mean, some of that has to do with access to care. Some of that has to do with, you know, culture in the area. So, there's not much you can do there. So one, one of the analyses that we ran was we were trying to figure out through 
process mining. Now, process mining, if you're not familiar, is taking data with timestamps and dates. Okay. And what you do to that is you start to manipulate it in a way that I'm going to create a journey for someone who has, uh, that needs a knee or a hip replacement okay. or someone who has cancer. So we ran these two side by side. And one of the things that's fascinating is that what we found is now these are like statistical manifestations of, of uh, employee journey that we would map someone who's living with cancer. And what we noticed was that they would always go back to primary care and the primary care doctor would be the facilitator of all these other complicated things. Hmm. Is that true in practice? This, the claims say that that's true. Now, okay. are they, are they going to a, um, you know, a academic medical center that has a primary care doctor as part of that? And it's part of a cohesive care plan perhaps, but that's not, that's not the, the, um, that doesn't happen everywhere. So we looked as well as someone with uh, musculoskeletal issues. So what we noticed there is that, first of all, no primary care doctor hmm. is involved. There's a lot of anesthesia and you know, mm -hmm. it's coded as you know, injections and stuff like that for, right. you know, that's, it's not someone getting a knee replacement. It's someone kind of not getting a knee replacement. You see other, um, you know, radiology. So we started to look at this and we're like, why is radiology happening before specialist visit how's that even possible the plan design says that that's not possible so what we found yeah. out was this is somewhat speculation but what we hypothesized was that you know because urgent care has more and more services that they're essentially circumventing the fact that they had to see multiple uh, you know mm -hmm. specialists prior to so they would go to urgent care essentially that doctor would classify as a specialist specialist to get a referral <laughs> into the network so i tell you that long-winded story to say the industry is always changing and the wow. providers are going to do things that are in their best interests and the health plans are going to do the things that are in their health, their best interests. And, you know, it's really incumbent on benefit professionals to pay attention to the market at large yeah. and make sure that you're, you know, doing what you can to, to stay one step ahead. Did most of your peers who are managing health plans understand that hospitals, carriers, consultants, the way those industries are set up, they are adversaries and have contradictory aligned or misaligned incentives. I think there are, there are some, some of the more senior benefits leaders definitely understand that. I think they, they spent, uh, when you look at some contrast, there's, they spend a lot of time on uh, contracts. Contracts are important. We know that there's putting contractual right. con Trolls in place because so that is a kind of strategy for cost containment. Um, but you know, more or less, I'm not sure how much people study healthcare at large as an industry to to help make informed decisions. It's almost more and more I'm running into. I just assume that everyone is sort of initiated on that point that hey, although we have people that we care about, love, get along with, great, they're our friends. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless. Like your friend who plays on the opposing team, when you get out on that field, you are adversaries, even if you go, you know, drinking together right afterwards, but on the field, you are absolutely adversaries. And that is something benefits teams are getting absolutely run over by carriers, consultants, providers, et cetera, all of whom might be their friends. They might even be on the board of the local hospital, but man, when you are running 
<laughs> Even if you are on the board of the local hospital, if you are in the seat of running that health plan, that is your adversary because their incentive is absolutely misaligned to your own. And we don't want that to be the case. We want to build a system that isn't like that, but that doesn't exist today. What is the biggest success that you had? And maybe it's the area where you got the most savings or, or maybe you had so the it, most it's not, it's not that it's, um, <clears throat> one of, I just learned about this. So one of the vendors that we had worked with who focuses on, um, mental health. Um, yeah. they are, they position themselves as it's, it's really someone to talk to. They use motivational interviewing. It's based on chat. And I was just yeah. talking to, um, this, um, a friend of mine and they had gone through this process of, you know, that I described this kind of this startup accelerator. And I heard back from, from them that the outcomes on how they refer to um, how they refer to other benefits is higher mm -hmm. than they would see from other traditional navigator services. And what, what's interesting about that is that wow. um, there's a lot of time spent with working with startups to make sure that they, they can produce an outcome because at the end of the day, you, you still have to prove an ROI. Right. Uh, and it sounds like for their entire book of business, they figured out and took the learnings from uh, when we were collaborating and figured out how to um, how to make sure people are getting timely information that leads to better response to their call to action. So if it's identifying a problem in the diabetes space that they can get them to a service to help. Uh, to me, that. I thought that was fascinating because all of the work that was put in to study that space and figure out why people don't take recommendations uh, from benefit navigators. And then, you know, sometimes they just fall on deaf ears and they don't necessarily take action on it. Um, it was fascinating to, for me to see a much higher action rate. Um, so I, I, to me, that, that was special because there's a lot of time and energy going into figuring that out and for them to have that across their book of business uh, several years later, I think is fascinating. That's awesome. Uh, this was a vendor that, that you found, you liked, you brought them into your yep. plan, you guys, and you guys worked together to create something awesome. Yep. I love that. I want to know about a big part of making a difference in this industry is taking a step into the unknown. It's uh, taking a risk, a calculated risk, but still a risk. I want to know about kind of the biggest risk that you took that paid off really, really well for you guys. And also, I'd love to know about a big risk that you took, or even it's big or small either way, but a risk you took that did not work out and how, you know, and how you were able to normalize that and, and work through that. Because a lot of people might, you know, that that might be pretty nerve wracking thing. And I, I want to make that more normalized, more acceptable. So one that worked out and one that didn't work out. You got it. I would say the one that worked out, we had a hypothesis that through leveraging some data science to target employees specifically based on their needs and do some targeted messaging to them through one of our navigation platforms. And do some A-B testing with, you know, one population being, you know, people with children and one, one being people without. 
and running running a campaign over a period of time with multiple touch points mm-hmm. with a pretty big investment because it was it was probably a million dollar investment to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it ended up being very successful because we took the time to set up this campaign using data science to target, making sure we had the population right, setting those messages out in sequence, so sequential messaging. So, try, you know, an email here, a phone call there. <laughs> And what we were end, ended up getting because we had access to this data is, you know, from click to close, click to close. So that message to a claim, when I say close in this instance, we were able to actually see that the action was taken. It's registered on the health plan as a claim and it happened. And as a result of that, we saved a, much more than we spent. And it was a, a huge <laughs> moment uh, for the team because we had set, like I said, we had done this in a iterative design way with this firm and it ended up turning out to be a really good uh, product offering so you got your whole population you divided them up into some different cohorts yes you prepped an email messaging campaign a couple different ones just a couple different ones with different variations correct you blasted those out to the to the populations so these were dependents and and you were able to track hey what was the close rate and you're able to do, hey, here's 500 and 500 and see what the rate was and then adjust and another 500 and 500 and adjust in order to get better and better hit rates in your communications campaigns. And what I'm saying is that, yes, we were able to refine that, but the campaigns actually work because we could track. You know, one of the things with uh, communications to space, you're often left to only the vanity metrics. So sent and open. What I'm saying is we actually tracked sent open click through and then all the way to the fact that this message was sent to someone who had a claim for the topic that we were promoting like if it was a flu shot for example trying a flu shot okay great example that's awesome okay now one that didn't work there's a many that didn't work (laughs) that's glorious that everyone listened to that there were this is someone who is one of the most decorated health plans that has been in the last 30 years. And there were many, many attempts that did not work. That means that quantity is quality in, in, in many cases, because as you do more, you find the big hits that, that do work. What's a, yeah, there was, there was a, there was a musculoskeletal pilot that we ran and I will just say, let's, let's split out what success means. So, the engagement was good. The people that used it loved it. It helped them to figure out like, should I get a surgery? Do I, should I lose some weight? Should I exercise more? Should I do physical therapy? Okay. And it really helped establish that um, relationship where someone can get through a hard time. Because if you've never met someone who needs a a knee replacement, um, it's not easy for them. They're suffering on a daily basis. They might be taking injections. They might be taking painkillers. It's not a good situation. So that was a really helpful one. I think we looked at, um, you know, the size of the pilot and the cost per um, cost per session. And the ultimate ROI didn't make sense. I think the cost per utilization was a little high. And just I don't want to go off on a tangent. But you know, I'm I'm not one for PEPM or PNPM models. I was right, we were trying to focus on utilization models that made sense. 
That's right. I have to say we may have we may have failed in this case where other people may have said this is completely fine because we're going to do a PMPM and they'll be fine with paying that amount, but we were pressing for more of a utilization model. Right. The sad part about this is this particular pilot was actually published in a peer-reviewed journal with fantastic outcomes. So when I say it failed, what I mean is, you know, by any objective measure, it was a colossal success. Okay. But in reality, from a business perspective, it didn't make sense. Oh, that's remarkable. Talk about sort of snatching failure from the from the winged jaws of victory, The uh, depending on the way that you look at it. So kind of last question here, give me some advice. How do I make benefits people love? Find benefits people that love people. That's the first <laughs> first step. Um, I, I would say, you know, you told me to find benefits, people that love data though, too. I mean, so unpack that a little yeah, bit. Yeah. I, I, I think you have to treat benefits as a business. It, it's in fact, a very large P and L, whether you realize it or not, you know, Preach. I say, I don't want to say it's just an L like the law side, because, you know, those rebates come back. It adds money back into the system. Um, it's important because the CFO is looking at those numbers and, um, you are relied upon you here's as a benefits professional, you have a dual fiduciary duty. You have one to the health plans or mm -hmm. multiple plans that you manage and to shareholders. So to me, that's one thing to be proud of. Like that is your role. Your role is important. The other thing is, and, and I will say this until I'm blue in the face, people it's, it is about employees, but their families are there too. And we often don't think enough about their families. So, People that can be empathetic, understand the full situation, because it's not just the people you see down the hallway that are experiencing these benefits. It's their families, it's their children. It could be their, you know, children up to in their twenties. So it's it's an important distinction to make sure that you have people that can focus on the fact that it's a business, the fact that you know these are people and they have families, and the fact that you have this fiduciary duty. Um, which is why I like the, that role. I liked working in that space because you felt good about what you were doing for people. That's awesome. It, it does seem it, it gets lost a little when you have a lot of corporate transformation. Um, some of those aspects can get lost, but uh, at the end of the day, you're still doing important work. Totally agree. Listen, thank you so much. So much great information here as well. And for joining us today. Hey, if somebody wanted to, learn more from you or reach out or connect with you or learn more about what you're doing now, what would be a good way they could get in touch with you? LinkedIn's the quickest way. I'm happy to connect with anyone who wants to chat. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks to the audience. Also, if this was helpful to you, or there's some tidbits in here that were, you know, helpful to you in, in carrying out your role, please send a, a link or invite a, a friend or a colleague to be able to listen in as well. And, uh, we appreciate you for joining us on Broken Benefits. Thanks for joining us on Broken Benefits. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to our YouTube channel or on your favorite podcasting platform. Also, please share today's show with a friend or colleague. It's free to do and it helps us spread the message to as many people as possible. Until next time.